I was the guy who would always fight for it. Now, I always wanted it more than everybody else, but for some reason that was like, most of the time, not quite enough. So get, when that movie came across my desk, it was no acting required. I just had to be myself. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord. The moral of the story is take your 10-year-old son to lose. This is not a race. This is war. Just dream it. Say it out loud with your words, and then unicorns arrive from nowhere, <laughs> and they just make everything easy. A podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord, and on the show today, we've got film actor and Oscar-nominated director Sean Astin. He's going to share stories from behind his favorite roles, learning how to cry on camera, and his philosophies on life. Okay, so Sean Astin, sometimes you get to be really excited, like your 10-year-old self just thinks you were the most awesome person. If you could say when you're 10, when you're 40 or however old I am, and they, you get to do something as cool as this, for me, this was a huge thing. So hopefully someday I'll have Johnny Bench, who's my favorite baseball player on the show, but to have Sean Astin on there, like somebody like, I love all his stuff. I always feel like the underdog in things, and he's like typecast. Like he's whether he's a fictional hobbit or he's a football player or he's a kid who's losing his house, he's always the underdog who finds a way. And that's one of the things I just love about him. And so hearing all these little backstories, hearing how he's even underdog in real life, like being kind of a, a stockier guy who's going out and running marathons and doing the Ironman in Hawaii and doing all these other things, it's just to me, it's just fascinating. I love those types of people. Um, and one of the funny things that I asked him, I was like, so when people yell out to you on the street, when they yell at you, what do they say? What do you hear the most? And I always thought it was going to be one thing, but you know what? It turns out it's completely something else different that people yell at him on the street. Hey, it's Mikey from the Goonies. Mikey is, I find it shocking. I was 13 years old when I did that movie and it was very, very successful in 1985. People tell me I look the same. and I think, no, I don't look the same at all. But they think, I, I mean, people have almost run me off the road to scream, hey, you guys, which is like, you know, if I, I do a little demographic check with people, if people are like, hey, I know who you are. And if they can't quite place it, I look at them. I'm like, you know, if it's a 50 year old guy, I'm like, did you see 24? Yeah, I was in season five of 24. Oh my God, that's right. You came in to run CTU. Like, yep, yep, yep. If it's someone in their seventies, I ask them about Memphis Bell. If it's someone, uh, but, but. Cutting across all age groups is uh, is surprisingly is the Goonies, but and Rudy, you know, people will yell Rudy at me, you know, in the airport, Rudy, how you doing, Rudy? You know, or they'll chant when I finished the triathlon, they were yelling Rudy, Rudy when I came across the thing. So yeah, the commercial that came up, the one where they're quote unquote streaming Rudy, where it's Joe Montana and Steve Young and all those guys, was that your idea or how did that come about? It was their idea, and I absolutely loved it because. Joe Montana was, I mean, they were all legend. I mean, yeah. uh, Bo Jackson, Emmett Smith, and Steve Young, and Jerry Rice, and, you know, the fact that they were all hanging at their house, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and, and Joe, Joe Montana is looking at an iPad streaming Rudy, only instead of looking at Rudy, he's <laughs> looking at me. And I'm like, just like this on the Skype, yeah, yeah. like, hey, how you doing? No, it's Sean. It's Sean. You know, and <laughs> I just love it. Joe Montana was was a freshman when Rudy was a senior. Couldn't have been more gracious to the movie when the movie came out in 1993. Um, but then, you know, there was there were some little things that happened. You know, where where people were asking about Rudy all the time, and he was on uh, the Dan Patrick show, and Dan Patrick was like, "What's the deal with this Rudy movie?" You know, and he just kind of 
he's such a gentleman. He's mm-hmm. such a gentleman. And he, he was like, he, I think he felt on behalf of all of the Notre Dame players, football players for all time, including Newt <laughs> Rockney, George Gipp and, uh, you know, all those guys and, and all, you know, like, he's like, Oh, it's a movie, you know, it's, <laughs> it's important. You know, I kept thinking how many rings does it, Super Bowl rings does a guy got to uh, win before he stopped asking about the, like the last guy on the bench. Cause Rudy's about <laughs> the last guy on the bench. So uh, just the idea that he was acting kind of dopey and looking at Rudy and not being able to tell the difference between me. And, and I just thought that was awesome. What was the hardest thing about that role or, or kind of where did you grow from that? Well, physically doing the football stuff, you know, I'm, I'm five, seven. I'm what, I'm what Charles Dutton, the five foot nothing, a hundred nothing without a speck of athletic ability. I'm like, well, (laughs) guilty. (laughs) So doing the physical, learning how to do the football, bulking up enough to be credible, even remotely credible as a football guy in college, no less Notre Dame that that required effort, you know, and it was definitely, you know, getting banged up a little bit was was good and good for me and good for the movie. But it was, you know, that was noticeable. The the rest of it, you know, it was me. Yeah. I'm I'm Rudy. Sean is Rudy. In my, you know, Rudy's his last name, Rudiger. Is yeah. it, and he's from a big Catholic family, and all the boys are called Rudy. You know, it's yeah. it's it's not just a, the a name of a guy who you know achieved his dream. It's an idea. Um, so and I I was that idea on well, my baseball team, you know, on my uh, cross country team in life. We're trying to get work as an actor, as one of five boys. I I was the guy who would always fight for it. Now, I always wanted it more than everybody else, but for some reason that was like most of the time not quite enough. So get when that movie came across my desk, it was no acting required. I just had to be myself. Um, the only thing that, and I tell this story a lot, um, and in corporate settings, it's, it's, um, people are surprisingly moved by this next thing. And you wouldn't think it would, you wouldn't necessarily think like this might be a fit, but I talk about how in, in movies, I had a hard time crying, like really, you know, an actor is supposed to be able to emote, um, and, you know, my parents, my mother, Patty Duke, Academy Award-winning, Emmy-winning uh, actress. My dad, John Ashton, who plays Gomez in the Adams Family, uh, who's now teaching drama at Johns Hopkins. He has been for 15 years. They're really important, wonderful people who've made a big impact on their community. But they got divorced when I was like 10. And, you know, that, that wasn't easy. And I, so there's – when I think about my maturation as an actor – I really think about what started as a real inability to access some emotion that was inside of me. And it's pretty clear that that was a defense mechanism. So by the time I got to Rudy, it was a pretty ingrained thing. You know, I would, I would just kind of learn ways around it or I'd try and find ways to be credible without, without really bearing my soul, if you will, to kind of say it in a big way. The one thing that I absolutely determined going into make the movie Rudy was that I wasn't going to fake it, not just for a crying scene, but for any scene. I'm just not going to fake it. The university is too important. The ideas are too important. People who have this experience, 
a similar experience are too important. There's just the one thing I owe them, the one thing I owe myself is just don't lie as an actor. And so it came to that moment and the director said, Sean, don't talk to anybody all day. And we, we shot this at the golden hour. It was like, you know, I guess 530 or something like that. We would have shot it when the sun was going down and, and it just hit that golden hour gleam of sunlight on the golden dome. By the way, my business manager's from USC, and he said he went with a bag of tomatoes to watch that movie. <laughs> he said, all right, it's a good movie. I'll let it go. Because, you know, Notre Dame has a – you either love it or you hate it. And uh, I found a lot of the Notre Dame haters were touched by were touched by Rudy. So so he said, don't talk to anybody. And, and so I sat and I read the script like four times, you know, over and over and over again, just trying to occupy my time. There was no iPods back then in 1992. Yeah. And so – and when we filmed it, we did the first scene. Well, I won't tell the whole story, but basically sure. by the, th the third take, the director was getting desperate because we only had a small window of the perfect light to shoot it in. And he came up to me and he looked scared. So any artifice that he had as a filmmaker, as a director, sort of posing or posturing or uh, was gone. He was kind of laid bare as a director because he wasn't going to get one of the, you know, pivotal moments in the movie and he was scared and something that was honest inside of me recognized something that was honest inside of him and he said uh just kind of he blurted out sean what are you afraid of oh oh i i lost it and he was like careful wait rolling rolling like you know a a, a trained actor knows how to you know, harness that, knows how to control that emotion so that it can be deployed, you know, effortlessly within the context of the scene. I was like bawling. So I tried to keep it together for the first part of that long crane shot. And then you don't even really see me cry that much in the movie. You kind of get a sense that he's crying, but I run off. Well, they said, cut. I was collapsed on the ground sobbing. I mean, just like you, like, like, uh, like in Goodwill Hunting. You know, it's a catharsis. It's a moment that comes in your life where all of a sudden everything that is you is both torn down and reaffirmed at the same time. And so for me, that was that moment. And and if it wasn't for that moment, I never would have been able to fully realize the moment that we did in Lord of the Rings at the end of the Return of the King when Frodo and Sam are at the top of the volcano in Mordor and they're just about to fail on their quest and Frodo's about dead in his arms and he has this wonderful scene where he's he's crying and he's trying to nurture Frodo and I, when I was sitting on that volcano I was absolutely connected to the moment 10 years earlier on the bench in South Bend Indiana there was no space no time it was like the emotional development that I had uh, cut through that. And, and I think people, people need to know there are moments in life, and I think we need to be aware that they can happen when we rediscover what's possible in ourself. And if you are honest in those moments, man, such extraordinary things can happen in your life going forward. Do you know the story about the creation of Samwise? No, no, tell me. All right, so J.R. Tolkien, who served honorably in the First World War uh, as a British officer, he served with these guys called Batman, 
B-A-T-M-A-N, not Batman like, you know, Cape Crusader Gotham guy. They were called Batman. And their job was to attend these officers, cook their food, you know, get make sure that their the buttons on their uniform were polished, you know, whatever they needed to do, no job too small to make sure that these, uh, you know, colonels and generals had everything that they needed. And if you think of it, in those days, colonel would stand up in front of a, a group of soldiers. If they didn't look right, if they looked dis- – it's not like Hollywood cool now, like I look right now. Like she, you know, <laughs> They needed to be buttoned up in order to command the respect of their, of their people. And so – and these guys, these Batmen were noted. They were enlisted guys. They were working class guys. Uh, and they were noted for their bravery and their loyalty, their their basic decency and goodness, and their willingness to do whatever it took to you know to help. And and in a way, they were a really important part of the war effort. Even though you'd think, how does boiling potatoes make you a good part <laughs> of the war effort? Well, everything is connected. And so that's that's who Samwise was. And and I don't know what it is. I was born into a life uh, that most people would consider privilege. It didn't feel like privilege to me, mm-hmm. but my parents were successful, famous actors. Uh, they had money. But somehow in my life, I never felt like we had a lot of money. I never felt like we were like that. But we, w- that was it. I mean, we, we did have that. And, and yet I've always felt connected to working people. When I married my wife, Christine, who's from Rolling Prairie, Indiana, and her dad was a firefighter and her grandfather worked on a crane. Um, her mom died when she was a kid of Hodgkin's, but her, her stepmom worked at a foundry. Like I, when I showed up to meet them all, I felt like I was at home. I felt like normal people. And if, if you talk to certain actor friends of mine or director friends of mine, and, and if you were to ask them, like, do you think Sean would be good at playing like an officer or more of an enlisted guy? <laughs> I pretty much think they'd say – you know, he's really got the heart of an enlisted guy, which makes me want to go out and play an officer. But the, you know, there's there's just something to that idea. You know, everybody talks about you know this is the heartland of America. Well, everywhere in America is the heartland of America. You can't tell somebody in Oregon they're any less of an American than somebody in Virginia. I mean, maybe they weren't there when it started, but you know, we we all carry with us aspirations, and so. Uh, but to me, I just feel like. I just feel like a like a people guy, you know. I feel like a people guy, and I feel like those themes that run through the movies that I've done, in particular, Lord of the Rings, which is far and away the most successful. And by successful, I don't just mean like money. It made a lot of money. It made like four billion dollars in the theater. But, but in terms of the way that it went into people's hearts, because you'll remember that movie came out uh, December nineteenth, two thousand one. September eleventh, it just happened a few short months earlier. And people were exhausted. The country, the world was was weary mm-hmm. from being afraid, from trying to recover from this uh, assault to all you know to the the thousands of people who died and their families. And but really, the whole planet was uh, you know upended. And then, almost miraculously, or not, depending on what your faith is. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie, this fantasy movie came along and it made over a billion dollars. Hmm. It was able to provide an experience for people that reminded us 
that there's good in the world. That there that there is there may be evil, but there's also right. There's right and wrong, and right wins out. I really think that you know in in Greek Greek drama, which is you know kind of the early foundations that we that that maybe you know the Kardashians aren't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but the underpinnings of the idea of it is that you are able to create an experience for somebody that unlocks – that has the ability to unlock something within them. So they would act out a tragedy and the people in the audience would cry. But in that time period, crying was not kind of an everyday – there weren't Hallmark commercials you know, in, in the kind of Greco-Roman you know, arena for, for just you know, kind of being metrosexual and in touch with yourself. So with that idea that you would that you could be that you could be carried through a process that allows you to experience a lot of emotions and battle scenes in an interesting way they access that part of us that that wants to fight that is willing to fight and uh, and if the movies are done properly they can connect that idea of bravery and that thing inside you that that like alpha thing inside you that women have just as much as men by the way so when you walk out of Rocky, you know, I remember walking out of Rocky in 19, was it like 78, 79, something like that yeah. at the, the, the Man Village Theater in Westwood, California, uh, in Los Angeles, and like pumping my arms and like, why normally I'd just be on my bike riding home. Why was I jumping up and down? Why was I so animated about that? It's because they were able to tap into a story. And I think Rudy tries to to do what Rocky does, but instead of you know, being a champion, he's a champion of himself. You know, he conquers his own, uh, his own ideas about what he's capable of. So, uh, I mean, I remember walking up onto the stage in front of the Bank of America crowd and I can't remember where we were at in the like financial crisis thing, but it, it couldn't have been pretty. And I remember stand, I remember standing up there and looking out at them and they're all respectful. You know, they're respectful. And this is, Another one of the banquets that they go to, they all go to these banquets. It's, you know, banquet 47 and a, you know, 200 banquet year. And uh, they, they were respectful, but you could see there was like this, just kind of like, I don't know, this little blanket of mundacity that was, that was over the place. And I got up and I grabbed the microphone. I screamed into the microphone, we're going to go inside, outside, inside, and outside. And I started screaming the Rudy thing. And you could tell it was like jarring to them, but it woke them up. And and then I I just kind of like, it's a goofy thing to do. I pulled over a chair. I stood up on the chair and I started doing the Rudy speech. And by the end of it, they were cheering going, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. And I'm like, okay, now I have these people. I remember doing like, like Yellow Book. And um, uh, there were a couple of those that I did where they just – once they felt like you weren't, I don't know, if Leonardo DiCaprio walked into an office, a, a room right now, you'd probably be like, whoa, he is a larger than life person. He just won an Oscar. His movies are so incredible, you know, and we, we, he's just so beloved. And But I think for me, the movies that I've been in sort of invite a relatability. And, and so I feel like as soon as I would go through and literally like shake people's hands and talk to them and interact with them, they – there was people were put at ease and they're willing to get comfortable, willing to get excited. And I think when you're putting these events together, what you want is to have a sense of confidence that people are going to come out of that room kind of feeling a little pumped up. And one theme that I gravitate to in most of the speeches that I give in a corporate setting is living life with a sense of mission. 
Um, and you know, you've, you've heard of the purpose driven life. Uh, everybody knows that life should be meaningful, but somehow the idea of mission, maybe it's because it's got like some sort of militaristic foundation or something behind it. I think, and I think that my whole life has reflected that idea that people would, would ask me like, you know, relax, you've already done this. Why do you need to do that? Why do you need to push? Why do you need to like achieve? What, what is it that's, that's driving you? I feel like my life matters. And I feel like if I can set that example for other people, because my life is no more special or important than anybody else else's life. You know, if I speak out on political issues, you know, it's like, you're just a Hollywood actor. You're right. My voice is no more important than anybody else's. It's no less important either. I really do believe that I'm destined to be doing certain things. And it gives me peace to know that. And so even when I don't know, probably the hardest moments are, you know, when you don't know what you're supposed to do yet, and yet you feel like you have a mission and a sense of, you know, kind of obligation to your own narrative, the own story of your of your life. So you're like, okay, I know I'm supposed to be doing something, but I'm not exactly sure what that something is. And one of the things that sustains me in my life is this abiding connection to the idea that my life matters. And it matters because I'm doing something. What I'm doing is important. And it's gonna and it's gonna be important beyond just me. It's gonna be important for my wife, my children, and anybody that I come into contact with. I don't always live up to that. I'm a human being, but that's the and I I think that sometimes when people are in a corporate environment, they feel like they're lost, and you know that they're, they're kind of a number, and so that message speaks to them because it's like it doesn't matter what cubicle you're in, your life you know has intrinsic value, and if you know it and you own it, then everyone around you will, and then you've got like the most Type A ambitious people who don't need you know, a hobbit telling them, you know, while they've got, you know, 37 meetings before lunch and they're cooking up deals, you know, they're on with Japan and they're doing whatever, like those guys, you know, sometimes it's important for those cats to sort of go, Hey, you know, you're achieving a lot. You're, you're, you're grinding it out. You're doing all this great stuff. It's always important to, and maybe you already do. It's important to remember that all of those phone calls, all of those meetings, all the breakfasts and, you know, frequent flyer miles and everything else, they're in service of something bigger than you. You know, one of my favorite movies is uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And it's this great idea that you get a chance in that movie to see what the world would be like without you. And that really would be a gift. And I think people would be amazed to find out how many people they touch. So so that that idea, living life with a sense of mission, is the way I've always felt lived. And it's uh, it's gonna, you know, sometimes people like as important as people want to be as kind of, you know, highfalutin because you have to be, it's a defensible decision to a board or to whoever's got the line item on the thing. Some people just want to hear stories about Lord of the Rings. What was it like in New Zealand? And like whatever <laughs> thing they can do to wrap it up in that, that's what they want to do. What was it like to sack a quarterback in front of 58,000 screaming Irish fans, you know, or they'll have, they know movies that, you know, like Encino Man, or or Fifty First Dates. Fifty First Dates is one that I get all the time playing the brother in that movie with the lisp and stuff like that. Like you can be as serious as you want as like a, a, a you know someone with corporate responsibility. But when I go up there and say you know sounds kind of fruity or protein thick or one of my <laughs> dumb things, they they're floored. 
they're absolutely floored with that stuff. So uh, it's also important not to be too important, you know, not to be too self-important. Thanks again to the great Sean Aston, and thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and to learn more about Sean Aston and others, go to premierspeakers.com. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric Woody. Your creative director and part-time leprechaun was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in the third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of D. & Associates. Thank you to the incredible voice talents of the muy profundo Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO Sean Hanks, and CIO Chris Yount, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you've listened this far, you clearly have nothing better to do, so why not continue on and listen to the next Beyond Speaking podcast.